Let that be our, our decision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's our heart's desire. We choose Christ. We choose to look to Him. We choose to trust Him. We choose to follow Him despite every obstacle, despite every circumstance, despite what this world tells us, despite our own fears. We choose Christ. Help us to be resolute in our choice and to always move forward with Him. No turning back. Meet with us today, fathers. We open Your Word and study it. Give us open ears and open hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been following Christian news over the past few months before the Middle East blew up, you may have seen a heart-wrenching story about one of America's great writers and pastors. He revealed the story that took place 20 years ago. And at the time, he was 50 years old, and his ministry was on top of the world. A brand new church sanctuary was bursting at the seams. New members were being added every week. The church appeared on the list of of popular attractions in its home state. Tour buses were being brought in with visitors and guests. The magazine Christianity Today sent uh, one of its reporters to write a profile on this dear man. And the writer called him America's pastor. Reader's Digest designated him as the best preacher in America. All cylinders were firing. He turned sermons into books. His publisher turned books into arena events. He was writing children's books and recording kids' videos. He was a great success. What no one knew, he says, was this. I was a mess. He was struggling. His staff was struggling. Departments were squaring off against each other. Tacky emails were flying around the office. Ministers were competing for budget dollars. And and a couple of invaluable employees, tired and weary from the tension, quietly resigned. And since he was the senior pastor, it was all up to him to set the ship in order. But he says, who had time? Who had time for intramural squabbles? He He had sermons to write. He had lessons to prepare. The problem is, he says, that Sundays come every week. And he had, in addition to, to his duties, he led a midweek prayer service. He taught a weekly early morning men's gathering. Deadlines were coming at him from every angle and all sides. He had little time to think, to pray, to study. The staff needed him. The pulpit required him. The publisher was counting on him. And the entire world was looking to him. And so sadly, he returned to what he did to cope before he came to Christ. He began to drink. He drank secretly, but he drank regularly. He returned to what he left when he came to Christ. It's tragic, but but it has a good ending. God would not let him go. He opened his eyes to his own behavior. He confessed his hypocrisy to the elders They covered him with prayer. They got him the help he needed. And when he admitted his struggles to the congregation, he was met with grace and an opportunity to help dozens of people who struggled with the same temptation. His story had a good ending. But how many don't? 
How many times have we, we heard or read about a recovering drug addict who falls back into drugs one last time with tragic results? Celebrities. Celebrities who spend a lifetime in addiction and then get clean and go back to it. And it's tragic. Instead of choosing to go forward, we, we choose to go back to what hurt us. See, going back to the place we were rescued never leads to the desired help we're looking for. We go back to what defiled us. We go back to what pulled us down. It's so hard to believe. But in our human nature, it happens, doesn't it? It has its roots in Scripture. And today we're, we're going to look and we're going to read about one of the most incomprehensible backslidings in history. Turn with me or look up at your video screens here to Isaiah chapter 31. For a little bit of context, 700 years after their exodus out of Egypt and their freedom from Egyptian slavery, the Israelites, now part of Judah, remember Israel and Judah split. And this story is about Judah. They find themselves with a newer enemy, a bigger, badder enemy, the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire was on the rise, having conquered much of the Middle East. And they were known for their cruelty and their fighting prowess. They were led by King Sennacherib. And they had become the most powerful empire in the world at that time. So little Judah was marked next as the, as the next nation to fall to the Assyrians. And so they're coming for Jerusalem, Assyria, and, and the Jews are in an all-out panic. Fear has, has gripped Judah. And God told them just two chapters ago that he stands ready to defend Jerusalem. Could there be better security than that? But the Jews decided they need additional support. So they decided to secretly negotiate with you ready for this? Egypt. They went to Egypt for help. Judah was so enamored with Egypt's horses and their chariots and their military strength. That's what they wanted. That's what we need. More numbers. Stronger military. Better trained warriors. So God warned them. God warned them, don't seek an alliance with Egypt. They didn't listen. So here we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 31. God's final warning to the nation of Judah through Isaiah. Here it is, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Verse 2, yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall and all will perish together. Wow, is there a clearer warning, a more stern warning than that? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Still, still Judah refused to listen. And the results were tragic. The Assyrians devastated Judah and made their way to Jerusalem. The Egyptians sat on their hands. 
I'm sure with smug, smug uh, smiles and smirks on their faces, they proved to be no help. It's a tragic lesson to learn. Choosing sources other than God will never bring us the desired help. Returning to sources. Returning to sources that we once knew and left behind will never bring us the desired help. It only leads to tragedy and devastation. We saw it here. We see it time and time again. How? How can you reach for that? How can you reach for that person, that aid, that source? Why? Well, it happens. You find yourself today reaching for balms that you know aren't good for you. You find yourself today justifying sin under the influence of pressure, stress. You find yourself seeking alliances with those you know will only bring you down, especially in your spiritual walk. Do you find yourself embracing the world, embracing its ideologies, embracing its, its thinking, its beliefs, its trinkets, and justifying all of it as it's okay, it's harmless. Friend, this is the textbook definition of backsliding. Today we're going to look at three things, three steps to take if you find yourself in that place. And Judah did. Same place they were in, in its hope to overcome the Assyrians. First step, what do we do? Our first step is to recognize. Stress can often lead to some eye-opening behavior, can it? Robert McGee once stated this. He said, true character is revealed in the choices a human being makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, the truer the choice to the character's essential nature. Pressure shows the character of a person, doesn't it? So often we use stress or, or pressure to justify behavior or actions that we would never ordinarily make. We justify the means based on the ends. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing whatever I need to do to get through. Friend, it's important to recognize that choice you're making really means something different. It's not whatever it takes. It's I'm choosing something I know is wrong to try and make something else right. It's I'm choosing something else instead of God. I'm substituting something else in my life instead of God. It's an indicator of where our faith is, isn't it? We've got to recognize that. So often our first knee-jerk reaction is to go to others, go to our friends, go to, to anyone who listen for advice. We, we try to fix it with our own tried and failed brute force attempts. And our solutions always seem to make matters worse, don't they? And we look back, and in the rubble of what we've caused and the circumstances, we look back, and there we see our loving Heavenly Father waiting in the wings. Quietly. He's always unassuming. He never forces Himself on us. He never forces our hand or forces our choice. And we think, why? Why didn't we go to Him sooner? Why didn't we call on the Lord first? You know, I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and it's such a nice thought. It says, it says the following. 
When all else fails, say a prayer. Oh, isn't that precious? No, no, it's not. It's dead wrong. It should read before all else fails, say a prayer. Go to God first. We don't go to God last. We don't go to God as our last resort. Has he become that? To where do you go? To whom do you turn? To what do you turn when life tumbles in on you? We run to all kinds of things, don't we? We run to the advice columns. We, we, we turn to our phones. We run to distractions. We run to comforts. We run to people. And in so doing, what are we doing? We're cutting ourselves off from God. The problem is we look to God as our last resort. Boy, if it gets that bad, I better pray. God should be our first resort. When you don't know what to do, ask God to come help. Come to my aid. Cry out to God for help. Guess what? He's always there. He's waiting. No matter how desperate your situation may be, no matter how impossible it may look, there's nothing too desperate, too impossible for our God. Too busy, too distracted, too frazzled, too much noise, too much chaos, too many people counting on me. The list of excuses runs so long. We've all used them. But if we don't come to God every day, if we don't run to God at every turn of our lives, the help, the support we so desperately need, it'll be like hourglass sand slipping through our fingers. An unknown student from West Coast Bible College keenly wrote this poem titled, Too Busy to Pray. I love this. Listen. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't take time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, You didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, Why, child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He answered, But you didn't seek. So I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Ask, seek, and knock. Jesus explained that well, didn't he? Matthew 7, 7 to 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. He is always available to us, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done. When we find that things aren't working in our lives, it isn't because God isn't working for us. It's because we didn't ask. Stop going that way. We didn't come to him. We we chose a different source for help. We chose a different path. And you know what? He honors your choice. God always honors free will. He has gone to such great lengths throughout time to protect free will. You still have it today, my friend. But recognize the gravity of your decision. 
It isn't just a selection for help. It's a choice to be made in obedience to God. God wants us to turn to Him first. He's asked for that. Look at verse 1. Woe! Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. He wants us to turn to Him. We're obeying Him when we turn to Him. And when we turn to Him first, recognize that opportunity. And then lastly, those sources that we turn to, aren't they the same ones that let us down? Weren't they those ones that failed us in the past? Judah turned to Egypt. Egypt of all nations, of all sources. They turned back to their former captors. Back to their former torturers. You were rescued from them. Don't you remember the, the, the slavery? Don't you remember what it took to get you out of that land? Don't, don't you remember the enslavement? Don't you remember those chains? Friend, don't go back to that which God has already rescued you from. Don't go back to that sin. Don't go back to that habit. Don't go back to that crowd. Rescue happens for a reason. God saved you. God redeemed you. God rescued you. He cleaned you up. You know what? Your help doesn't come from those sources. Go forward with Him. Your help comes from the Lord. No turning back. It didn't work before. It makes us think it's going to work now. Two chapters prior to this, Judah saw, they witnessed it with their own eyes, the northern nation of Israel warned not to ally itself with Syria. Same thing, the Assyrians were, the Assyrians were charging. Don't ally yourself with Syria. God warned them, and they did anyway. And they fell brutally to the Assyrians. And they were all taken captive in the captivity for 250 years. And Judah had a front row seat to that lesson. They saw it. They saw what happens when you ally yourself with a source outside of God. And when they were faced with a situation, boy, you would think, ah, we saw what not to do. No. Same temptation, same fall. The temptation was too great to call upon Egypt for help. The devil certainly tempts us, doesn't he? He knows what gets us. He knows the soft spots. Judah had a weakness for military strength. That's what we need. Horses, chariots, numbers, strength, prowess. See, if the devil can get us to forget the pain and hurt and despair those sources caused us, if he can get us to see that past with rose-colored glasses and to long for what we had, then you know what? His plan to pull us under and pull us all the way down can be completed. Recognize his tactic. He's smart. You aren't just getting help. It's not just a means to an end. It's the beginning of a slippery slope to losing yourself and losing to the devil. Recognize that. Keep your eyes on Christ. Choose Christ. We heard it in the song, didn't we? Choose him. Turn to him first and turn to him continually. 
He's the only source for your help. David said this in Psalm 121, 1-2. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, we're seeing it, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Recognize your state, your situation, your opportunity, and the devil's tactic. Recognize them. And when you've made that choice to turn to another source like Judah did, it's not a means to an end. It's not whatever I have to do. It's a deliberate choice, and it matters. It's sin. It's anything that takes us away from God is sin. So what do we do? We recognize that, and then what do we do? Second, we repent. After seeing the failure of turning to Egypt, Judah's king Hezekiah, he recognized his failure. He recognized his nation's failure. He recognized the rebellious alliance that he attempted. He recognized his sin, his disobedience to God, and what did he do? He repented. He repented, and what a gracious God we have. He longs to come to our aid. He longs to fight for us. You'll never hear God say, too late. You're repenting? Well, you had your chance. It's over. Until he comes back, there's always a chance. Look what it says in the next section. Isaiah 31 now, the next two verses, four and five. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls a great lion over its prey, And though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord God Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. What a promise. All it took was coming back to him, repenting, Why would we not choose him at every step of our journey? We find ourselves in rebellion, in in disobedience, and having gone back to other sources in our lives for help. They won't come through. They won't fulfill. They won't satisfy. Repent. Ask God to forgive you for your disobedience. He's waiting to forgive. He's longing to forgive. He, He promises to forget. And then he's waiting to to pick you up, restore, and fight for you. Listen, we all blow it. We all fall. We all fail. We all find ourselves exactly where Judah was at that time, holding on to something of our own choosing and holding tightly. And we know it's wrong. We're in sin. We know it. Remember step one, recognize it. Now, own it. Repent. We don't stay there. We don't, we don't stay in our sin. We don't continue on. We must repent. Eugene Peterson, a great writer, said this. There's an interesting history of the word repentance. The word in Hebrew means originally to take a deep breath and sigh. A deep feeling of sorrow, of remorse. Repentance at the root at the very beginning, seems to have the idea that you realize you have done something wrong and you feel badly about it. And you feel it deeply. It gets down deep inside you and you groan or sigh or breathe deeply. 
All of us know how that works. We know all about that part of repentance, the feeling bad part, right? We feel guilty. We feel bad. We know the part about feelings. But he says this, the interesting thing is that the use of the word didn't last long in the Bible. Very quickly, the writers began to substitute another word for the same action. And this other word meant return or turn around and go. Not a word of feeling at all, but a word of action. Under the influence of the prophets, repentance became not something you felt, but something you did. And it's essential, you get that through your head, if you're going to understand what the Bible means about repentance. You don't repent by taking a deep breath and then you feel better. You repent, he says, only when you turn around and go back or toward God. It doesn't make any difference how you feel. You can have the feeling or you don't have to have the feeling. What's essential is that you do something about it. The call to repentance is not a call to feel the remorse of your sins. It's a call to turn around so that God can do something about them. Wise words. Repentance must be active. Right? It's not just remorse. It's not I feel bad. It's, it's remorse that leads us to act. We should know how to repent. We can't become a Christian without repentance. And we can't grow without regular repentance. In fact, growth is the habit of repentance and turning to Christ for forgiveness of our sins. Every day, every fall, every sin. Repentance must be the lifestyle of a Christian if we are to grow. We chose to sin. We must choose to repent. Genuine repentance with earnestness, taking seriously the commitment to leave the sin, with eagerness to clear ourselves by confessing it, with indignation of our sin, with fear not just of the consequences but of a holy God, and with longing for holiness. That's repentance. It's hard. It's not easy. It's difficult because we're busy, we're prideful, we're often less than zealous about holiness. We don't like admitting we were wrong. We don't like admitting we failed before a perfect God. But it's essential. It takes work to bring our hearts in alignment with God. It takes work to bring our hearts to the point of genuine repentance. But therein, guess what? It's found, there's found a deep, lasting joy. There's a wonderful relief in our hearts when we repent. We felt it. Clean slate. God cleans the slate. He's made it that way. He's made it to feel relief. He's designed all things to revolve around and glorify His Son, Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus, who He led the way of humility and then joy, the humility of the cross, and then the joy followed in the resurrection. It's the same pattern. Jesus empowers us to live this way. And it's the gospel being lived out in our lives when we repent, when we come to him. Billy Graham wrote this. He said, repentance is a very unpopular word. You don't hear a lot of sermons anymore today about repentance. But the first sermon Jesus ever preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was God speaking through his son. Jesus had come with a heart filled with love and compassion. But he immediately called upon men to acknowledge their guilt and turn from their ungodliness. 
He said repentance must come before he could pour out his love, his grace, his blessings, his mercy upon men. Jesus refused to gloss over iniquity, refused to gloss over sin. He insisted upon self-judgment, upon a complete about-face. He insisted upon a new attitude before he would reveal the love of God. He said, this does not limit the grace of God, no, but repentance makes way for the grace of God. That's great. God is waiting. He is waiting for us to repent before he can open those floodgates and pour out his blessings, before he can begin to work in a mighty way in our lives, in our situation, in our battles. So did it happen for Judah with the Assyrians after they repented? Let's see. First step, we recognize. Second step, we repent. Our third step, we return. If you could reduce the gospel to one word, most scholars would choose that word repentance. Metanoia in the Greek. In the New Testament, metanoia literally means a change, meta, of mind, noia. And some have called this translation of metanoia as repentance one of the, the worst mistranslations in the New Testament. It's more than a change of mind. Some have translated it as a turnaround, a change of direction. That's not that much better. It's, it's like Jesus takes us on a little detour. No, the Aramaic of metanoia really means, I love this, returning home. That's repentance. It's not a detour. It's not a repointing. It's not a nudge. It's not a subtle change of mind or a change of heart. It's going back home. See, when Jesus restores the original image of God within us, when we become new creatures in Christ, when old things have passed away and all things have become new, we're learning how to be what God originally made us to be. We're returning home. We're returning back to Him. Every time we step out into sin, every, every time we reach for those sources, those alliances, those helps that are outside of God in our lives, we're stepping outside of His will in our lives. And we're leaving where He meant us to be. And when we repent, we're coming back home. We are returning to the One who wants to be our all in all, who waits for us with open arms. We're returning to the only One who can heal us who can calm us, who can protect us, who can meet our every need. See, repentance isn't just asking for forgiveness and then continuing on in our sin. We've got to return to the right path, the right way home. We must return to the one who is standing ready to help us through whatever obstacle we face. He promises he will come through for us. So I want us to look now at the last part of this chapter. Verses 6 through 9, look at the promise he makes to Judah in the last part. Look how specific it is. Return, you Israelites, verse 6, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. Return. There it is. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by no human sword. Huh. 
A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So after King Hezekiah and the nation of Israel of Judah repented and returned to God, what happened? God described what's going to happen here. Assyria will fall by no human sword. God's word is a sure thing, friend. It seems beyond our capacity, our understanding. How exactly is this going to happen, Lord? Well, in case you're wondering, it's history. Let's read it. 2 Kings 19.35-37. Here's what happened. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. So what happened? Well, God did what he said. A vicious 185,000-man army wiped out overnight. No human sword was used. King Sennacherib dead. Judah rescued, lives to be free another day. Did Egypt come through for Judah? No. Did Syria come through for Israel? No. Was it the horses and the chariots? Was it in greater numbers, better training, more fierce warriors? No, no, and no. The battle was over when Judah finally took their faith out of other sources and put it back in God. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's all God wanted. Just trust me. Just show up. Just be there. I'll take care of everything. Just have faith. Enemy vanquished, battle complete. Friend, return to God. You've gone back to sources that never, never worked for you in the first place. Turn back to God. He's waiting. He's ready to deliver you. If you're sitting here today and you've been running from God all your life, if you think the commitment might be too great, too, too much, too heavy, I want to live life on my terms. I want to do things my way. I want my solutions. I call the shots. Let me ask you, how's it working out? Do you have joy in your life that isn't rattled by every, every crisis you come up against? Do you have a peace that passes all human understanding? How can you be peaceful during this time? He can give that. Do you have contentment in your life? Are you settled? Do you feel settled knowing who you are, why you're here, what your purpose is in life? Friend, nothing in this world is going to give you those. Only God. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ is going to fulfill 
satisfy and fix you. Nothing else. Nothing else is going to cut it. We've tried. We've tried those other sources. The history of man is a long chronicling of us trying every single source before we try God. They don't work. Only He can forgive your sins and wipe your past clean. You want a clean slate? It only happens through Him. Only He can forgive those sins. Only He can promise you a final destination in heaven with Him forever. Don't waste another day. Don't waste another moment. Open your heart and give it to Christ today. Choose Christ. And dear believer, if you find yourself where Judah was, backslidden, having reached for sources other than God, sources you've long left behind, they won't help. They never could. You're grasping at straws when you need an anchor. Recognize your sin. Repent to the Lord, and then what? Return. Return to Him. Only He will be your bastion of security, peace, and contentment. You know, that pastor I spoke of earlier just happens to be one of my favorite authors in the world. His name is Max Lucado. And 20 years ago, that was his story. He could have chosen to walk away from the Lord. He could have chosen to just let it go and give in to his sin. But he didn't. He chose Christ. He chose to recognize and repent and return. And God strengthened and healed him and restored him. See, we're never too far gone for God to bring us back. This summer, he released his 97th book, aptly titled, God Never Gives Up on You. It's appropriate, isn't it? Choose to return, dear friend. Choose Christ. It's never too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that there's always a way back home. There is always a way back in our wanderings, in our foolishness, in our sin. You always provide a way back. Help us to recognize, Lord, that the, the choices we made that led us away from you are sinful. Help us to repent and return to you. Only you can rescue us, Father. Help us to turn to you before we turn to anyone or anything else. We choose you, Lord. And we thank you that you are always there for us, ready to heal, restore, strengthen, protect, and fight for us. May we walk in your will and in your way every day of our lives. Give us the strength to be resolute, Lord, and fully committed. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen.